You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to renewedheartministries.com and click donate. The choices we make every day, they show not only what kind of people we want to be, but they also indicate what kind of community or society that we are setting in motion by those choices. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery and this is episode 408. Our title this week is Setting in Motion a Safe, Compassionate, Just Society. And our reading this week is from the Gospel of Luke. This is found in Luke 6, 27 through 38. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them expecting to get nothing thing in return then your reward will be great you will be children of the most high because god the most high is kind to the ungrateful and wicked be merciful just as your father is merciful do not judge and you will not be judged do not condemn and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven give and it will be given to you a good measure pressed down shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with what measure you use it will be measured to you. No other section of Luke's version of the Jesus story has a denser concentration of the rich teachings that Jesus's early followers attributed to him than this passage that we're reading this week. There is so much for us to unpack this week in these 11 verses. So let's let's dive right in. I want to first talk about enemy love. And right away, I want to unequivocally reject any interpretation that demands we feel some kind of love or positive emotion toward our abusers or oppressors. That interpretation, uh, I believe, only furthers the harm that abusers and oppressors have committed against survivors. So how are we to interpret Jesus's teaching to love our enemies? Well, one possibility that, that deeply resonates with me is Barbara Deming's two hands metaphor for nonviolence. This is explained by Pam McAllister in You Can't Kill the Spirit, pages 6 
6 through 7. With one hand, we say to the one who is angry or to an oppressor or to an unjust system, stop what you are doing. I refuse to honor the role you are choosing to play. I refuse to obey you. I refuse to cooperate with your demands. I refuse to build the walls and the bombs. I refuse to pay for the guns. With this hand, I will even interfere with the wrong you are doing. I want to disrupt the easy pattern of your life. But then the advocate of nonviolence raises the other hand. It is raised outstretched, maybe with love and sympathy, but maybe not, but always outstretched. With this hand, we say, I won't let go of you or cast you out of the human race. I have faith that you can make a better choice than you are making now, and I'll be here when you are ready. Like it or not, we are part of one another. Enemy love in this context, uh, means that we still hold those who harm us, uh, we still hold them accountable. And in so doing, we need not lose hold of their humanity or our own. It leaves room for those who have harmed us to choose to change too. Enemy love doesn't mean we feel something warm and fuzzy for those who have harmed us. It means we view them still as humans, as still part of our human family. And because of that, we don't allow them to, to continue committing acts of harm while we wait for them to change. Turning the other cheek, that's in this passage this week too. Um, I've written so much over the past decade about what this passage could have meant in the social political context uh, of their day. In a 10-part series I wrote back in 2019 on self-affirming nonviolence, I, I address this section of Luke with more depth and more context and, and more nuance. And you, and, and you can find that, uh, at least the beginning, you can find part one of it. Again, it's a 10-part series, but you can find that on our website. I'll put a link to this week's, uh, in this week's e-site to that series. It's entitled A Primer on Self-Affirming Nonviolence. And, and, and I, I, I don't want to interpret these words of Jesus in any way as encouraging oppressed or abused people to remain passive in suffering. And that's how turning the other cheek is typically interpreted with those who are uh, uh, doing the, them harm being allowed to just continue doing harm. But to, I want to interpret it rather in a way that's that's life-giving. And, and I think we have to, in order to do that, we have to read the passage in its cultural context. Jesus's culture strictly forbade the use of the left hand in interpersonal interactions. And since most people are, are right-handed, they only use their left hand for, for unclean tasks. Even gesturing at another person with the left hand carried the penalty of exclusion and, and 10 days penance. And you can, I'll put a link to that in, in, the, in this week's e-site as well, but you can find that in the Dead Sea Scrolls translated the Qumran text in English. It was published in 2007 on page 11. But, but, but therefore, one would not hit someone's right cheek with the left hand. One would, and I'm going to call you to try to imagine this physically this week, one would also never strike an equal on the right cheek. If you're using the right hand and you're striking them on the them on the right cheek, then that is a, a backhanded slap, a blow between equals. Um, it, it would have always been delivered with a closed fist to the left cheek or, or, or the other. The only natural way to land a blow 
with the right hand on someone's right cheek was with a, a backhanded slap. And this is the kind of blow that was sh a show of insult from a superior to an inferior, from a master to a slave in that culture, a man to a woman, an adult to a child, a Roman to a Jew. And, and it carried no penalty. If anyone struck a social equal um, um, this way with a backhanded slap, they risked an exorbitant fine of up to 100 times the fine for, for common violence. And, and I'll put uh, some, some uh, references for that in, in, in this week's e-site as well. And, and again, to strike someone who you viewed as socially inferior to yourself with a backhanded slap, that was perfectly acceptable. You can see that in Goodman in Jews in the Greco-Roman World, page 189. But a backhanded blow to the right cheek, it had the specific purpose of humiliating and dehumanizing the other. And what did Jesus command dehumanized people to do? Well, a retaliatory blow would only invite retribution and escalating violence. Instead, Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, the left cheek, so the supposed superior could strike you correctly as an equal. Uh, this was to demonstrate, I believe, that those who, uh, supposedly inferior, that they refused to be humiliated. The, the striker would have only one of two options, either a left-handed blow with the back of the hand and its penalty for using the left hand to strike that second cheek, or a blow to the left cheek with the right hand, the right fist, signifying equality. And since the first option was out of bounds culturally, uh, the second option would challenge the striker's supposed superiority, and, and the aggressor in that moment lost the power to dehumanize. Let's talk about nakedness in protest next. Jesus issued this teaching in the context of, of the Hebrew law. Many of the very poor had only two articles of clothing to their name, and the law allowed a creditor to take a poor person's inner garment, the, the chiffon, or the outer garment, the hemation, as a promise of future payment if they lacked the means to, to, to pay a debt. However, the wealthy creditor, they remember, according to, to Hebrew law, they had to return that garment. If they only had two garments and you were using one of them as user, you had to return that garment each evening for the other to sleep in. In Exodus 22, 25-27, it says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. And if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? They when they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In Deuteronomy 24, 10-13, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside. Let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor... <clears throat> do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. And in Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, do not deprive the foreigner or, or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. So in that society, before the invention of, of remember, modern underwear, it was more shameful to, to 
see someone's nakedness than to be naked. And remember Noah's son, Ham, in Genesis 9, 22-23, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders when they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they could not see their father naked. Because of this context, a debtor stripping off one cloak or, or, or the other in public um, would be public nudity. It would be public nakedness. Remember, this is before the invention of modern underwear. You only had two articles of clothing, and, and they're collecting on the one um, because maybe you've defaulted on the loan. You're, you're stripping off and giving the other. And you can compare Matthew 540, um, this passage in Matthew, with the one here in Luke 29. It doesn't matter which garment it is, um, both of them, whichever one they're taking, you would give them the other one also. A debtor exposing their body would also expose the exploitative system, and, and it would shame the wealthy, the powerful person who, who took their last valuable object from them. Jesus was actually right here endorsing public nudity as a valid form of nonviolent protest or resistance and bringing shame on the onlookers. Jesus recommended nakedness in protest over returning violence with more violence. And, and this passage this week also talks on giving based on need rather than worthiness. A more accurate translation for this next section of this week's passage is give to everyone who begs from you and consider the spirit of this injunction. Jesus was trying to foster the kind of human community where we place people's needs above our attachment to our own material possessions. In that community, when someone is in need, we don't stop to ask if they're deserving. We simply give as we are able. We give to everyone who begs of us. Our actions aren't to, to be about what kind of people others are, but about the kind of people we want to be. And, and if we have more than what we need today, we should share with those whose needs aren't, aren't being met. And we should do this trusting that if, if at some point in the future our needs are not being met, our Ourselves, the kind of reciprocal world, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that we've created, uh, it will be populated with people who can then share with us from their surplus as we have in the past shared from ours. And, and it talk, this passage also talks about demanding the return of property. Some interpretations of this passage would, would forbid people who are disenfranchised or who live in, in marginalized social locations from demanding justice or restitution or accountability or reparations for harm that, that's committed against them. What could Luke's Jesus have been referring to when he uh, forbid us from demanding the return of property that's been taken from us. Well, in our time, those who richly benefit from our predatory, exploitative capitalist system often demand that their privilege or their power or their property be protected when others organize and call for justice. They're the opposite of the priest in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, who, who, who when Jean Valjean stole his silver, and and was caught by the police. Remember, uh, the 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 
the priest gave John his candlestick too. In the book, A Black Theology of Liberation, James Cone wrote that those who were enslaved, they didn't consider taking from the slave master's possessions. Um, they didn't consider that theft or, or stealing because the slaveocracy was stealing so much from them every day. Our teaching says to those whose property or privilege has come at at, at the expense of others uh, or harm of someone else, don't demand it back when it's ultimately taken from you. And then lastly, the reciprocal nature of our world. This week's passage, it also includes the universal golden rule that's found in in most of the world's religious traditions. It includes an unconditionally and universally compassionate description of of the divine's orientation to the ungrateful and the wicked that that harmonizes more with with Christian universalism than with the Christian teaching of eternal torment. This this God that's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Um, and Jesus calls on those who subscribe to unconditional compassionate images of the divine to be those kinds of people in response, people of mercy, people of kindness, without regard for the worth or the worthiness of those recipients. And and, and this passage describes, it goes on to describe that reciprocal nature of, of judgment, of condemnation, of forgiveness, and, and of giving. And our choice the choices we make every day, they show not only what kind of people we want to be, but they also indicate what kind of community or society that we are setting in motion by those choices. For with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. A dear friend of mine, Dr. Keisha McKenzie, often says that society is a group project. In school, I never much cared for group projects. I, I often felt that the the weight of of the success of the project was disproportionately uh, pulled by those who who cared more about the work, and that's true in our society as well. And given the la- the past two years during the the pandemic, it especially behooves those of us who do care to be more intentional. Group projects fall on the shoulders of those who care the most, and whether that's fair or unfair, what we choose to do, the kind of people we choose to collectively be, will contribute to the kind of world we bring into existence during our short time here, whether we are judgmental, whether we are condemning, or whether we're giving and forgiving. We are are, are setting in motion the kind of world that that we want to live in by those choices. And, And for me, I'm choosing the path of love, a path of distributive justice, of sharing and caring. Um, this week as we close, well, what kind of world are you choosing? What kind of path are you choosing to, to walk down? What, what are you setting in motion? Heart Group application this week. Share something that spoke to you from this week's eSight or podcast episode with your heart group. Number two, share something from our passage that, that you believe is especially applicable still in our social context today and discuss that with your group. And then number three, Three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, just home for everyone? Thanks for checking in with us today, right where you are. Keep living in love, keep choosing compassion, taking action, and working toward justice. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.